You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join your hosts Anne and Kevin the second Friday of every month on The Sewer Show between 5.30 and 6.30pm here on 3CR Community Radio. This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions for the unemployed and underemployed. Everyone in our our community community has value. Hello, Kevin. We're back for another Friday. Hi, Anne. It's Friday the 11th of September. Already? That's a pretty infamous date, isn't it? September 11th. It's 9-11. That's what I'm saying. You know, with 9-11, how, you know, everybody knows what happened on 9-11. The year before 9-11 was when they had the World Economic Forum in Melbourne. Basically, a bunch of capitalists and neoliberals come in and they they tell you about how they're going to organise the world finances for everybody. And there was a big protest. And that was on September the 11th, the year before the plane crashed. And so it lost all its notoriety because of the bloody plane crash. Mm -hmm. That's what I commemorate. The annual protest. Where's that place they all meet at in Switzerland. Geneva. Geneva. (laughs) Oh, dear, I need my notes. It was the World Economic Forum, and there was big protests. You don't know what I'm talking about, do you? You've got no idea. Well. (laughs) It was very important, Anne. What's the one where they all meet? Zurich. It starts with a D, and that's always in Switzerland. Denpasar. It's not Darfur. (laughs) (laughs) I'm looking it up because it's bugging me now. Don't look it up now. We're going to have to cut all this. I'm going to use some of this. (laughs) I just want to find out what it is now. Da- Davos, Davos, Davos. How do you say it, Davos? I don't know how you say it. I've never heard of it. World Economic Forum. Or maybe they just had it in Davos once. On September the 11th, the year before the World Trade Centres got bowled over, it was held in Melbourne because I knew people that were working on it. Right. It was ridiculous. They had all these security checks. Yeah, I bet. And then my mate Tim Newman, who was doing AV in there, he'd finished his shift and he'd forgotten something. And he went, oh, damn. So he just turned around and walked back in and grabbed what he was going to get. <laughs> they make you jump through so many hoops, mm-hmm. but then half the time you can just walk back in whenever you want anyway. <laughs> as long as you put the right polo jacket on, you can get in there. <laughs> Correct. Stick on your, your fluoro vest and, and you're in anywhere. <laughs> you can go in there and pull the plug on it all. <laughs> so what were they doing with it in Australia? Okay. That's where they have their annual meeting, Davos, Switzerland. So the World Economic Forum has an annual meeting every year. Um, and they, so they must have these other meetings around the place as well. That's the meeting they have before the meeting. So many of these things <laughs> to keep up with. I think we should get like the calendar of international economic events and then somehow get passes and run off to them all. I've got a cousin that does that. She protests. Uh, so yeah, she's very good. Um <laughs> What's happening this week, Anne? What's the show about? What are we talking about? This week, Kevin, the show is jam-packed. Okay. We've got Jez Haywood from the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. He is their lead graphic designer. I like Jez. Jez is a great guy. And then later on, we'll be talking to a few economists and researchers. Jez, hello and welcome to the Unemployed Workers Fight Back show. Hello, comrades. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about what your role is with the union? My primary role is lead designer, so I'm currently doing all the graphic design work for the union. I just got involved when coronavirus started, and so currently work out a uh, a brand for the union. Are you responsible for the yellow? <laughs> is that you, the round yellow? Yes, yes, I am. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, well, we needed something that didn't look like any of the political parties. So that sounds like a bit of a baptism of fire into the AUW. Are you very involved in what the AUW is doing campaigns-wise? Yeah, um, I'm on the campaigns committee. We're flying by the seat of our pants a little bit at the moment because the union has had such an increase in, uh, in interest and membership since coronavirus happened. We've picked up about 2,000 new followers on Twitter in the past two months or something like that. The unemployment rate, it's done what it's never done before, I think, in the history of Australia, maybe barring the Great Depression, which is that it's doubled in a matter of weeks. Do you think that this might be changing the commonly held profile of the unemployed? Unemployed have been demonised and blamed for their circumstances by the conservative media, certainly, and by the general attitude. Uh, But now we're seeing general members of the public who have never been unemployed before entering the ranks of the unemployed, and it's all become real for a a lot of people. Is this changing the profile of unemployed in your view? Yeah, we're getting a lot of people now who, like you said, have never been uh, part of the system before, or people that have been part of the system maybe five, six years ago after the global financial crisis. And now they're seeing how much it's changed, how much worse it's got. And yeah, people are starting to realise that it's a terrible system and also the payments are grossly, grossly inadequate. Kevin and I complain about how much it changed over three decades, two or three decades, because we're oldies so we can remember back to our early 20s and what it was like. So you're saying it's actually changed even a lot in the last five years or so. So what what kind of changes are you thinking of there? It just feels like this ever-increasing pressure, like they're just turning the screws slowly and slowly over the years. You know, um, I'm a graphic designer. I have over 20 years' experience. I was working for one of Australia's biggest companies when the global financial crisis hit and have struggled to find work since. I can see you as, say, an example of someone for whom the policy settings didn't reach and, in fact, have been suffering. They call it economic scarring on the whole society. So there are people who are still suffering that earlier economic crisis, and now we're in a second crisis. So have you yourself seen your situation as one of how economic policy is set? I don't think that it's a problem of economic policy as much as it's a problem of capitalism. Bosses have just used the GFC as, as a, a, an opportunity to make work you know, a lot less tolerable, giving a lot more people a lot more things to do, treating them worse. My first job after the GFC was half the pay that my previous job was. I still haven't got back to the uh, the level that I was on before the GFC. So it's affected, you know, material conditions for people purely through opportunity for the for the bosses because there's a reserve pool of labour, as there always is. So you say you got involved in the union just before COVID, so that's a few months ago. I'm just wondering what prompted you to get more involved at this point in time in terms of unemployment activism? I've wanted to for a while, but... I had a basically a Centrelink-induced mental breakdown in February 2019. And um, 
Yeah, it kind of took me a year to work up the confidence to get involved. If anyone is interested in becoming involved in some of the campaigns that the AUWU is uh, looking to, and you already mentioned that things are bubbling away, and if anybody is interested in becoming involved, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, definitely sign up via the website, which is auwu.org.au, and then get in touch via social media is probably the best bet. We've got social media accounts. We've got the Twitter account, which is at AUS Unemployment. And also, um, I'm going to get a shameless plug in here for the, uh, for the AUWU Milk Crate Liberation Front, <laughs> which is our merchandise department, which is auwu.redbubble.com. We sell t-shirts and actually it's a really, really good way of raising funds, we've found. Excellent, excellent. I'm sure it's uh, all fantastic products and well worth putting your money behind. I think I'm going to get a t-shirt myself. I'm James Juniper. I'm an economist at the University of Newcastle and you're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back on Radio 3 CR. This comes to the, the definition of work. Uh, there's a lot of uh, manual work which is being replaced by automation. And on the one hand, people are saying that's bad because it means that people haven't got work. On the other hand, people are saying that's good because it means that people don't have to do shit work. And a lot of the conversation that we're having is opening up the definition of work so that it becomes more of a human experience. And people who talk about this job guarantee and full employment also talk about redefining work as something which is a lot more positive experience, that it's the interaction that we have as human beings. And so Bill might use the example of um, a surfer becoming a surf lifesaver. He's at the beach, he's surfing, pay him to look after the beach. Finding work that uh, is a lot more human in its application. Could you see that uh, there might be a way of applying humans as workers that's not so negative? The AUWU, one of our policy platforms, is a jobs guarantee, which must be said an optional jobs guarantee. So work for people who want it. And yeah, there are plenty of things that need to be done in society that don't involve, you know, pulling rocks out of the ground. Take, for example, the um, even replanting trees in old coal mines or something like that. Some of the proponents of a job guarantee would say that a, a person's uh, identity and self-esteem is based upon their useful activity, i.e. work. Yeah, I managed to successfully uncouple my identity from what I do for a living. Graphic designer slash photographer slash music journalist, which is extremely liberating. But yeah, I'd rather change my uh, Twitter bio back to Pelican enthusiast because I'm quite a big fan of Pelicans. <laughs> And that's very important. Yeah, yeah. And I haven't been able to go see any pelicans for quite a long time because of lockdown, and it's very annoying. They're beautiful in flight. I love watching them. Oh, they're magnificent. They're magnificent. This could quite easily turn into pelican chat, so you better ask me another question. <laughs> okay, well, well, back to the, uh, the work-related stuff. Um, I wonder how you would respond to people who... When they first hear of a job guarantee, they'll dismiss it often as saying, oh, this just sounds like work for the doll on steroids. How do you respond to that 
Well, work for the doll is basically modern day slavery. A job guarantee would come with, you know, a livable income and would also be fully voluntary or optional. So the people that don't work or can't work, don't have to work. The people that need a bit of time out to get their lives together, don't have to work. The people who are confused about what they want to do, don't have any pressure to work. So um, work for the doll and a jobs guarantee are two massively different ends of a spectrum where work for the doll should be dismantled with great haste immediately, like most of the mutual obligations regime. And yeah, a jobs guarantee should be there for people who want it. So the idea of it being opt-in is part of what would make it not succumb to exploitation of workers. So maybe then we could have, you know, an agricultural industry that doesn't rely on slave wages. The main reason people, Australians, aren't going to pick fruit is because it's seasonal work and what are they going to do for the rest of the year? Also, an interesting point that no one ever seems to bring up with the idea of seasonal labour and farm labour and what have you is under the current Centrelink rules, if you move to a place that has a lower rate of employment, say a rural area, you'll get penalised through Centrelink for doing so. So I'm glad you clarified that because that's one of the great myths that they like to roll out in the media when they're indulging in a little bit of doll bludger bashing, which is that, oh, look at all these young people. They don't even want to go and pick fruit. Well, there are very good economic reasons not to do that. And, you know, these are these pub owners that we saw in the news the other week complaining that people don't want to come back because they're earning too much on job seeker or job keeper. That's just pub owners saying, we don't pay our staff properly. <laughs> it's an admission of guilt, isn't it? Apart from the fact that there's absolutely no evidence that anyone has done this, apart from some anecdotal evidence from pub owners, the fact is, yeah, they're admitting if they're not paying people the equivalent of job seeker, which is still under the poverty line, then they're obviously underpaying people. And, you know, this whole, what was Scott Morrison's latest genius idea, job, what, what are we up to now, job trainer? Yeah, so it's back to the job readiness model, which is a totally failed model as far as creating jobs goes. It's basically suggesting that, again, you're unemployed because it's your own fault. And, you know, there are a lot of people out there that are very well trained in what they do. You know, the problem is that the jobs aren't there for them. The question that we're asking at the moment is uh, it's all about where does the money come from? It appears that it's not even a case of either or. The government is the sovereign currency issuer. It can create currency on demand. This is demonstrated by the fact that it pays for defence spending without too much thought of taxation or government debt. So it raises the question of if the government can afford to always spend on defence at such extravagant levels... How does it manage to do this? And is there a clue in this as to if it can afford defence spending, could it also afford at the same time, simultaneously, to look after its own population's social welfare? So, yeah, whenever you see a government announcement that's over $8.4 billion, basically they're giving away a year of, uh, of JobSeeker at its current rate. The submarines, 
would pay for JobSeeker above the poverty line for 26 and a half years. Now, Kevin and I are very enamoured of an economic school of thought that promotes the job guarantee that goes by the name of modern monetary theory. And that economic school of thought says there is actually no financial constraint when it comes to federal government spending. There's only resource constraints. So it can't spend as much as it wants because eventually it'll push up prices if you don't, for example, have enough labour or enough uh, steel to make your submarines or whatever. But I'm just wondering how you see that idea of no fiscal constraints. Is that something that bubbles around the union and is it something that you would see as playing into any of the AUWU activism in the sense of demanding that the government keep the rate of job seeker and also create a jobs guarantee? The government can magic money out of thin air to... Uh get their numbers wrong on JobKeeper by double or whatever the mistake was. (laughs) The one thing that really grinds my gears in the economics debate is the whole paying off the, the national credit card idea. Because, you know, running a country isn't the same as your household finances. And they are just being so dishonest and disingenuous running that line. You see people going, oh, but how will our grandkids pay for it? It's like, it's not how that works, mate. (laughs) I don't have a great grasp of, you know, economics. I'm a graphic designer. I make pictures for a living. But, you know, even I can see that it's a whole load of hooey. (laughs) Well, we're not economists either. We keep saying that on this show. It's our big disclaimer. We're not economists, but even... I could see when some politician or a journalist who's talking about having to pay back the national debt and how our generations to come will be paying this debt, that it's actually, as you say, a load of hooey. Yeah, I agree. Simple as that. So, Jess, one of the projects that I've heard about at the Australian Unemployed Workers' Union is disseminating some of the figures around unemployment. Can you describe what those figures are, where they come from, what they mean and, and what you do with them? Yeah, we do a regular weekly jobs report, which is graphics that we put out on social media. The government releases their unemployment figures through the Australian Bureau of Statistics, but those numbers don't seem to really be that useful. You know, to qualify as being employed, you only have to work one hour a week. Mm -hmm. So what we do is we get raw numbers from the Department of Social Services, which is number of job seeker uh, recipients. And it tells a different story. You know, the government had projected 1.7 million unemployed by September, whereas the number of job seeker recipients is over 1.6 million as of May. And we just go to seek. So we just have a look at the number of jobs posted in the last 30 days on seek. So you're getting the vacancy rates from seek.com, which is the jobs website. And then you're comparing those with the number of people on Job Seeker or the unemployment benefit. I didn't know the department puts out those numbers. How often do they put them out? Uh, they put them out monthly, but they're a month behind. So we're just waiting on June. They're a month behind because they've got so much counting to do at the moment. Yeah, yeah, apparently so. So the purpose behind the AEW doing that is to get a more accurate sense of what the unemployment rate is. A more accurate sense of how hopeless the situation is and how much damage going back to $40 a day will do. 
So there are so many people that are in desperate situation, not having employment. And so if people want to see that graphic, where can they go to have a look at that? I'm assuming it's going out on a Facebook page, but I definitely know it's going out on our Twitter account. So in the AUW social media streams, people can see that graphic. So if they ever want to argue the case about the numbers, they've got some hard facts to hand. So because the numbers are monthly for the unemployed figures, when we first started doing it, there were 1,640,773 unemployed people, people receiving JobSeeker. Um, and 75,831 jobs on Seek. Oh, yeah. I mean, that works out to 16 applicants per job. But then if you actually go and apply for a job on Seek, they send you an email back saying, sorry, you haven't been successful, and this is how many people applied for this job. We've seen examples of 2,500 applicants for a job. Wow. I went through and fired off a bunch of dummy job applications just to get these emails back the other week. (laughs) And nothing that I applied for had less than 100 applicants. Some were over 600. And, I mean, businesses hate the mutual obligations because it fills their inboxes with applications which are people just ticking off that they've applied for a job. But, yeah, I'll freely admit that occasionally I'd apply for a job as a doctor or a dentist or a vet just to bump up my numbers. (laughs) I'm sure I could work it out as I went along. (laughs) All right. Thanks a lot, Jess, for spending some time with us and telling us a bit about what the AUW is up to and a bit about what you've been up to as well. Good on you, Jess. No worries. Thanks for having me, guys. And, uh, And look after yourself too, mate. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet www.3cr.org.au I thought I might give you a bit of a test question here, Kevin. Are you ready for it? No, but go ahead. I want you to imagine that there are a bunch of jobs and I want you to imagine that you've got a whole lot of people who are unemployed and looking for work. Now, if the jobs are not where the people are, what do you do? Do you decide that the problem is with the people and you need to move them to where the jobs are, or do you decide the problems with the jobs and you need to make jobs where the people are? What you were talking about was actually my job for quite some time, which was working as a production manager, and I'd have all these jobs and I'd have to go and find all my crew who were on my lists, and then I'd drag them in. And sometimes my jobs might be spread around the place, and so I'd tell people, righty well, you've got to go here and you've got to go there. And they'd grumble. They'd say, oh, I don't want to go all the way to Geelong. And they go, well, that's where the job is, so take it or leave it. And they go, righty And if they say, no, I'm not going to go to Geelong, they have to try and find somebody else that's going to go to Geelong. And that's probably the way most people think. But that's me as a production manager trying to find people to fill particular jobs. But I reckon if you're talking about it from an economic point of view, talking about from a societal function point of view, Mm -hmm. you have to change your mindset. Yeah. The obvious lens that you use when you're deploying people is to complete the task at hand. And that's a lens that a lot of people in the Liberal Party or the Coalition might apply because they come from a small business background. And so they take that lens into Parliament and view employment in that manner. If the jobs don't suit the people, you've got to change the people. So you're going to want to relocate them or you're going to blame them for not being job ready. And that's the neoliberal lens. However, 
if you're in parliament and you're making laws and you're running an economy, the task is to find employment for your population so that your economy can work. And that's a, a lens that I think a lot of our politicians don't utilise. Yeah. You might say if you're managing an economy, which is different from managing a business, then your task is how can you have full employment without inflation? That's your task. That's right. It's not building a building. It's not flying into Western Australia to rip iron ore out of the ground. Mm -hmm. That's the lens that the conservatives use. Mm. But the real task, if you're running an economy, Mm -hmm. is how do I deploy my population so that they can be productive and useful? What you're going to say is, well, what we need to do is supply jobs to suit the people. And you can do that through a job guarantee. Right. So how you answer that question really does depend on what kind of economic lens you're using. And it has a huge impact on people who are living in rural and remote communities, especially given that the market is not that great at creating jobs in remote areas. And this was a a theme that came through in a few conversations that I had over the past month or so. So surprisingly enough, it turns out that back in the 1970s and the 1980s, Australia had a program that is similar to a job guarantee. It was kind of like a mini version of a job guarantee. Oh, okay. And it was good at dealing with that mismatch between jobs and people. And this program was known as the CDEP, which is short for the Community Development Employment Projects. That no longer exists, that program, and these uh, researchers were comparing it to what gets used now, which has a similar name. It's a CDP, and that stands for Community Development Program. So what's the difference between the two? Well, they were very keen to point out the difference. The CDP is like work for the doll on steroids, like it is 12 months a year work for the doll, whereas the CDEP was much more like a living wage to do work that's suitable for your, you know, circumstances. So there was more choice involved in the CDEP as opposed to the CDP? Mm -hmm. There were jobs that were locally devised and still has a legacy in a lot of the Caring for Country projects that happen even now. So the mismatch problem between where the jobs are and where the people are came up in my conversation with economist Dr. James Juniper, who is an economist with the Newcastle School of Business. He was talking about this mismatch problem from the macroeconomic perspective and saying how the mismatch problem can lead to an inflation problem as you get near full employment. And the solution to that is the job guarantee. Let's start by having a listen to economist James Juniper. Now... One concern is that the distribution of unemployment can be quite uneven and unemployment can be very persistent. And that means often that uh, you might be trying to create jobs through traditional policies of public investment and investment in infrastructure, but you're creating jobs not where the unemployed live, but where the unemployed don't live. And that can lead to inflationary bottlenecks occurring before you've achieved full employment. So another policy um, instrument that MMT theorists recommend is a job guarantee. And there you simply provide jobs directly at the minimum wage to those who want employment. And you can create those jobs, including um, jobs for indigenous communities and people employed in remote rural areas. And that means that you can achieve full employment without running into those inflationary bottlenecks that might otherwise beset traditional Keynesian policies of public investment. That means that you can 
increase the rate at which the economy is growing without running up against inflationary barriers until you start to achieve full utilization. So the job guarantee is seen as an anti-inflationary policy. And the reason why it's better than unemployment as an anti-inflationary policy is that all those who are working at the minimum wage can be working in desirable jobs, doing helpful and valuable things for the community that do not directly compete with the private sector. And that means that as the private sector expands, they can move into better paying private sector jobs that might offer more chance for a career path. So the advantage of a job guarantee is that you have people who are work ready. They're already working in the economy. And the fact that they are work ready is very, very different outcome than if you have unemployed people who are moving back into employment. It's well known that unemployment has an effect on people's confidence. It scars them in the eyes of prospective employers. Uh, it can lead to their skills becoming redundant or depreciating through underuse and that sort of thing. So there are health effects, there are mental health effects, and there are effects on their skill and their confidence. So it's better to have people in a job guarantee pool being work ready. As someone who has been through long-term unemployment myself, I used to take offence at this scarring notion. But then I realised I had to admit that it had happened in my case because I will never work in the area that I was trained in. I realised, oh, I lost the momentum in that trajectory. So I understand now, I think, what the economists are saying when it's much better to maintain that continuity of employment. Mm. I do think the job guarantee, it's like the wonder of wonders, isn't it? Because it enables the market to keep going without sort of damaging people. So I just feel like it's, it's the win-win. Yeah, um, you know, the government uh, used to have these uh, employment programs in place and they survived through the Hawke-Keating years. And long-term employment programs were actually reviewed by the Bureau of Labor Market Economics and they were uh, evaluated favorably. But um, the policies were eventually removed. And of course, that included the Community Employment Development Program that provided jobs for Indigenous communities in remote areas. So a tragic loss. This sounds a lot more like a job guarantee. The CDEP as compared to the CDP today, which is essentially a, a horrendous work for the Dole Program. Well, I myself have worked for the Community Employment Development Program. I, I had jobs with the local government um, doing work on pavements, laying down automatic sprinkler systems uh, in the Thebidon Oval, <laughs> chopping down noxious foreign trees around reservoirs in the Adelaide Hills, and pulling up African daisies in national parks. So <laughs> they were all worthy and desirable jobs. Jamesy, are you telling me amongst your many skills is to recognise an Australian daisy from an African daisy? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and... Uh, we were getting paid the minimum wage, so it was, uh, it was yeah. a good form of employment. You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, a show all about the economics and experience of unemployment and underemployment here on 3CR Community Radio.
pre-COVID, so before we all got so rudely interrupted by all this pandemic stuff, I was talking to a couple of researchers who specialise in looking at employment in remote Australia. And so this is where the mismatch problem becomes quite crucial. So I was talking with Dr Francis Markham, who is with the Centre for Aboriginal Economic Policy Research, and I was also talking with Professor John Altman, who is with the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalisation. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, Francis. Thanks a lot, Anne. Now, our listeners are probably familiar with a program that is known as Job Active. And I always have to put it in inverted commas. I always call it the, the so-called employment services system. And this is the contract between the federal government and privatised employment services which are organisations people must attend uh, under threat of losing the unemployment benefit. So I've heard of this other program, which I've heard described as a sibling program to Job Active. And this other program that's currently in place is called the Community Development Program, or CDP for short. And I have to confess, I don't know a whole lot about how it all works. And I was wondering... Would you be able to describe how it relates to Job Active, what payment it relates to, how it's targeted and what it entails in terms of activity tests? Centrelink essentially has a map and if you're in remote parts of the country and you would be uh, part of Job Active, instead you're part of CDP as it's known. It's in areas where the Indigenous population is quite a large proportion of the population. Um, So CDP is really focused in many ways on remote Aboriginal communities as well as remote small towns, essentially. It has a geographic target which effectively targets Indigenous Australians. So the uh, Commonwealth will say this program isn't discriminatory, it's just aimed at remote places, but we know that about 80% of the CDP caseload is Indigenous. So if you're on a benefit, you might have to do CDP as your mutual obligation requirement instead of job active. It applies to a range of benefits, most frequently new start and the youth allowance, but also to other payments where people have a mutual obligation requirement and have been deemed to have um, capacity to do some work. So if you're on a disability support pension with partial capacity to work, you might be part of the CDP program. Or if you're on a parenting payment with uh, work capacity, then you'll probably be on the CDP program as well. So what is different about this program then? There's a few differences. And one of those differences is that the labour market in remote parts of Australia, particularly on remote Aboriginal communities, is very, very weak, essentially there's far too few jobs compared to the number of job seekers, which we know is a problem um, across the country, but in remote communities it's long-term and there's no solution in sight. Unlike the Job Active program, there's far fewer requirements to apply for jobs, but there are other more onerous obligations that come as part of the CDP. So, for example, the work for the dole part of CDP starts immediately rather than starting after you've been on job active for a year. Another key difference is that 
for people under the age of 50, that that has to happen five days a week. So there has to be work for the doll activities five days per week, which is quite onerous. There's lots of similarities to Job Active, but it's really with a big focus on the work for the doll component rather than applying for work or work experience or study or training, for example. The work for the doll component goes year-round as soon as you're on the payment. It's year-round as soon as you're on the payment, and it's every day. That sounds horrendous to me. So I'm just wondering if you would go so far as to perceive something that someone has to gain by keeping remote communities impoverished, given that the CDP program is so punitive. I think in remote communities, the CDP is trying to achieve a couple of things. One is that it's trying to um, essentially be so punitive and so harsh that people are forced to find some alternative. Now, for some people, they might drop out of the social security system altogether. Other people might decide that life is so hard that they'll leave the remote community and go and live in a town, a major town or city, and that in many ways saves the government quite a lot of money. It's much cheaper to provide social housing, for example, in a major town than it is to do it on a remote community. I'm not sure that this goes into the intention behind the policy, but I think it would be fair to say that there is a desire in some parts of government to see remote communities become smaller and less significant and that having an extra punitive um, employment policy might play a part in uh, making that happen. You could almost say that the effect of policy like the CDP, it's almost a way of using economics as the latest round of assimilation. Yeah, that's right. You might recall about a decade ago, the West Australian state government actually published a list of remote communities that it would like to see shut down. Um, And there was such a backlash to that that they had to walk that policy back. But nevertheless, it's very clear that that is a policy goal that governments would like to see realised. Can you explain, sort of give us an overview of how the CDP, which is like this sibling program to Job Active, how does that sit in relation to the Close the Gap policy and the intervention? So the CDP has a complicated relationship to both closing the gap and the NT intervention. The NT intervention didn't directly create the CDP. It predated the CDP by um, six or seven years. In terms of closing the gap, one of the seven targets is to halve the employment gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians and you would expect that it's notionally aimed towards that goal of reducing the employment gap. Unfortunately, it's doing nothing of the sort. There was a community jobs program which was abolished and replaced with this uh, Work for the Dole program. And over that period, we've seen unemployment skyrocket in remote Australia. It's actually working to increase the gap. When it comes to the CDP program itself, there was a government evaluation undertaken by the then Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. That evaluation wasn't particularly positive, and it was um, 
held privately and not released for a number of months until a reform package could be brought in to head off the kind of inevitable criticism that would have resulted from the release of the evaluation. You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back with Anne and Kev on 3CR. And I'm Martin Watts, Professor of Economics at Newcastle University. John, what hooked me into really wanting to speak with you is you describe yourself as an economic anthropologist. And of course, on this show on Unemployed Workers Fight Back, we're starting to understand that macroeconomics holds one of the keys to understanding unemployment policy. And in fact, we have a pretty jaundiced view of the way mainstream economics has fed into that. So I'm just wondering how your decades of research into economic development and policy for Indigenous Australia, how has that been informed by your own understanding of economics? It was very clear to me right from the outset, you know, and I was only in my early 20s, that a very different heterodox approach. We needed to understand and analyse these economies of these of these diverse communities. I love that word heterodox. <laughs> that's that's certainly how we describe ourselves here. I was both advised and it became very obvious to me that really to understand what was going on in Aboriginal communities, I needed to go and live with Aboriginal people and, and share with them their experience of looking to make a livelihood in contemporary Australia and embedding yourself in their you know, ways of doing things, their social relations of production. I ended up spending 18 months living with a tiny group of people. You know, the average size of the outstation I lived at called Mormaga was only 32 people. But what I did was record on a daily basis how people spent their time, what they produced, what they consumed, what they purchased. I was able to to collect very fine-grained information, arguably a a sort of fine-grained information that that probably has never been collected in Australia. You know, if I've got a gift to give to the people there for their hospitality to be able to repay them, it's through that extraordinary archive that I've now lodged both in their community keeping place or museum, but also uh, with the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies uh, in Canberra. You know, I was living in an extraordinarily remote context, 500 kilometres to the east of Darwin on Aboriginal-owned land with people who'd only had intensive contact with the Australian uh, colonial state for less than 20 years. And, of course, what I found out is that they are fundamentally different, both from Western norms, you know, the dominant norms in Australian society, but also that they're fundamentally different from what policymakers in Canberra understand or envision, you know, as opportunity for Indigenous people. Looking back now, um, just on 41 years on, some of the friendships that I um, developed at that time are, are the most enduring, you know, meaningful and, and deep relationships that, that I have. You know, I've got a kinship term, I've got, a, I've got relations, I've, I've got a clan affiliation, I continue to work with those people. I continue to assist them in any way that I can. The work I did with them and the research I've done with them has you know, been at, at the core of how I've tried to influence Australian policymakers and politicians 
you know, I'm an academic researcher, but I'm, I'm also a very um, grounded advocate for Indigenous people who, you know, have land rights and they have tidal rights. I work very closely with uh, environmental philanthropy called Garagat Ganji that assists, you know, many of these groups in Arnhem Land with, with their conservation activities and also work with another organisation called Original Power. The Original Power looks to provide information to Indigenous people to make informed decisions you know, about how they want to engage, particularly with extractive industries. One of the things I did, for example, was look at you know, how people spent their time. And what I found was that most of the people I lived with spent their time hunting, fishing and gathering for livelihood. It's really important to understand that I'm not suggesting that people were hunter-gatherers in some pre-colonial way. If you convert what they hunted and fished and gathered into what one calls market replacement value or what it would cost them to buy those things, that accounted for 64% of their local economy. Now, to me, when I did that analysis, I found that mind-blowing, that people were living in Australia in 1979 and 1980 and yet were getting most of their livelihood from hunting, fishing and gathering bush foods. What you're describing, is that something that you would start to see as a hybrid economy? My theorisation of economic hybridity was based on that grounded information. So yes, this is a hybrid economy that has that customary sector, the production for domestic use sector, but it also has another sector, which is production for market exchange, which is producing art and artefact for sale. But it also has another sector, which is often referred to in a demeaning way as the welfare sector, but it's a non-production sector. It's people receiving some social security benefits as they're entitled to as Australian citizens. My theorisation of economic hybridity, which, which I should say came along later, saw those three sectors, customary market and what I call the state sector, as interacting with each other. In other words, when people go hunting today, they might use a gun and they may have, they purchase that gun with money that they either earn from selling art or money that they get from their social security. It's not that people are living pre-colonially. It's, it's not that they're using pre-colonial technology. They're using modern technology and they're using money to be able to produce for their livelihood. And things have changed, you know, they've transformed mm -hmm. in many ways since then. And work that I've done quite recently with people interviewing them about how they saw their quality of life in 1979-1980 compared to their quality of life now suggests that they actually think that they, their lives were better, that they were better off 40 years ago than they are today, despite 40 years of government projects of improvement, of looking to make things better for people. The dominant language of the day is, to, you know, looking to close the gaps. <laughs> yes. Well, people living in remote Arnhem Land, the gaps have not closed at all. In my own life, I've felt uh, the restrictions and the constraints that come with the state aspect mm. of um, income. <laughs> yeah, the state project, from the time colonisation came to Arnhem Land and from the time white settlers came to Australia was to alter the subjectivities of Indigenous people. In the early days, we didn't use that language. 
you know, basically either people were eliminated or else their means of production, their land, was taken off them. And the only way, the only opportunity they were given to survive, if you like, was to integrate into the mainstream. You know, people living in desert Australia, in remote Australia, you know, being able to resist many of the draconian policy of the Australian state that do fundamental violence to people by looking to alter their subjectivities. And in saying that, some people, you know, embrace the Western way of life. So I'm not saying that everybody resists. What I'm saying is that in some ways it's incumbent on a colonised power culture to allow people the choice about how to live. How, how do they want to refigure their livelihoods when in contact with a powerful settler colonial state? The treatment seems almost inexplicably harsh over the last decade or so. Yeah, well, look, I think if we just go back a little bit further, you know, I can date historically a change in policy approach to Indigenous Australians from the time of the election of the Howard government in 1996. And there was a belief that the market could provide the solution to everything. So that fundamental shift, you know, it escalated in its intensity. For instance, in, in the welfare realm, from about the year 2000, we suddenly started looking at issues around mutual obligation. And we didn't just talk about people's rights, whether they're Indigenous or non-Indigenous, but we also started talking in policy about their responsibilities. And that shift occurred without any negotiation with Indigenous people. The expectation is that the Australian state will not support you for a lifetime. It'll only support you for a short time. It will retrain you and you'll get a job and you'll be self-supporting. Now, in the context of many parts of Australia, that sort of logic is, is illogical. <laughs> it just makes no sense. If you're living in remote Australia where only three in ten Indigenous adults have jobs, how are you going to create the other seven jobs for people where they live. If people live remotely and there are no jobs out there, well, either we'll develop where they live, and so we have this growing notion of developing the north, or else those people will need to move to where the jobs are. You know, and this is one of the extraordinary contradictions of policy, where land rights and native title law is giving more and more of Australia back to its rightful owners. So Indigenous people in remote Australia who now have title to about half the Australian continent, is on one hand. On the other hand, they're told, no, no, you must join the mainstream economy and the mainstream labour force. You must become entrepreneurs, labourers, business people. I mean, again, this is one of the extraordinary contradictions. You know, come and join the mainstream, but you won't get adequate health services, you won't get ad adequate educational services, you won't get adequate housing, you won't get adequate labour market services. But there was a ray of hope, and that was a program called the Community Development Employment Project Scheme, or CDEP. It's really important to remember that E, CDEP, which was a scheme devised in 1977, to some extent influenced by the great Australian economist H.C. Nugget Coombs, that was a form of basic income that was provided 
to participating remote Aboriginal communities. And what that program did was it bundled up all of people's unemployment benefit entitlements and it gave it to community, participating community, and it said, here's the equivalent of your entitlements for your participants. On top of that, we'll give you a little bit of money to administer the program. We won't have a Centrelink doing this. The community organisation can administer the scheme. The program was actually surprisingly successful in generating jobs, livelihood, enterprises, people earning under the scheme $100 more a week under CDEP than under welfare. They were also able to get part-time work. So people participating in the scheme weren't classified as worthless unemployed, but as productive part-time employed. CDEP operated as a basic income scheme that was not income tested. For people, you know, who were living on homelands and participating in, in that economy I'm describing, the hybrid economy, CDEP gave them a guaranteed minimum income. It helped underwrite that hunter-gatherer, arts production, self-provisioning economy that worked very well for people living remotely on their land. What strikes me is that what you're describing as a basic income sounds a lot like what, what we describe as a job guarantee, mm-hmm. which is a universal offer and then it's, it's tailored to individual um, situations. So it can be part-time and it can be supportive of activities that aren't in the neoliberal worldview considered productive. There's the possibility there to redefine uh, the definition of work. Absolutely, and and really importantly, you know, you, you empower people to define what they regard as work and what's meaningful for them. It gave people uh, the capacity to work in a whole range of ways that the mainstream economy just doesn't recognise as work. One of the enduring um, legacies of that scheme is that many of the participants from the late 1980s and early 1990s on, started participating in what is colloquially referred to now as caring for country. So they actually took CDP positions to get involved in managing the landscape, using a lot of customary knowledge to try to maximise the biodiversity conservation of their lands, many of which were returned in you know, quite degraded condition. Interestingly, when I was describing the people I worked with, well, those very same people, Ganingu people, are now involved in carbon farming under a major project called the Arnhem Land Fire Abatements Project. These people utilise modern technology and customary knowledge to have prescribed burning regimes over vast areas that basically result in far cooler fires and far less emission of carbon. And they get paid for this under the Emissions Reduction Fund, what Scott Morrison, uh, Smoko, (laughs) uh, refers to glibly as the Climate Solutions Fund. This is work that's fundamental to their sense of being, their sense of belonging to the landscape, to the land. You know, that carbon farming activity is only part of a suite 
of the way people make their livelihood. They're still hunting. They're still producing art for sale. Yeah, they're still engaged in the, the conservation of rock art. They're still engaged in the elimination of exotic weeds and threatening species like feral animals. If they're given the resources to actually reconfigure their local economies, they can come up with extraordinary creative solutions. People say, what you're talking about is, is blindingly obvious, <laughs> what, what I'm describing. And yet when I try and engage dominant Canberra-based politicians or bureaucrats with this vision that opens up possibilities for people living remotely, they go back to, ah, yes, but, but will people become self-sufficient? Will they become economically independent? Can they somehow make this all happen, you know, with their own resources? And the answer is, of, co of course, they can't. So when you put forward something that is potentially more sustainable, more ecologically sound, more compatible with local aspirations, you know, bureaucrats and politicians just can't see a way to refigure their failing programs. You know, the status quo suits certain people. And in some ways, this alternative development where the landscape populated by people and where people's rights are recognised in that land, not just in some sort of abstract way, but in a real economic way, in a way that, that makes them politically powerful, is threatening to the people who are benefiting from the status quo. And I think there, there is a commonality, if you like, between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people who are marginalised and dispossessed and lacking you know, the wherewithal to make a decent living for themselves. They share marginality. And I think there is real room for alliances and for social movements that move us towards, you know, jobs guarantees, basic incomes, recognition of the diversity of life ways, you know, that would that will provide well-being for everybody. So those were my conversations with James Juniper, Francis Markham and John Altman. I told you it was a packed show, Kevin. <laughs> that whole caring for country um, stuff, I'm reading this book at the moment called The Biggest Estate on Earth, which is all about land management prior to 1788 mm -hmm. and the work that needs to be done. There is so much work that needs to be done to right. bring the balance back into the local environment to stop bushfires and just manage land properly, which will benefit every Australian. It'll save houses from burning down. Uh, the, the land will become more productive. Even just from a, a pure neoliberal economic mm. mean, nasty point of view, it makes so much sense. But of course, there's so much more to it than that because of just the connection with, with land, etc. So mm -hmm. those sort of programs are crucial. Yeah. So what I discovered was that 6,000 primary school children in the Northern Territory live in homes where English is not spoken. Oh, wow. So they're living a bilingual life. And, of course, what happens is that when the bureaucrats are going into these communities to decide what needs doing, they often don't bring interpreters with them. And so you can see there's an immediate crying out need for jobs, like people who could be interpreters. I'm so pleased to hear that um, there's all these households where English isn't the first language. Yeah. Again, a lot of their language, a lot of the stories hold information about how country needs to be cared for. So if the language disappears, those instructions also disappear mm -hmm. and we all end up worse mm. off. So it's really encouraging to hear that that language is surviving. Yeah, exactly. 
and John Altman talks about the violence that is done to subjectivities by economic decisions. I think about those times that I was at a protest holding a sign of one sort or another and someone would lean out of their car window and go, get a job. <laughs> I'm like, don't you do violence to my subjectivity. <laughs> <laughs> I had a moment like that. Um, a little while ago, I was uh, standing as a Senate candidate for the Australian Workers' Party. This is at the last election. I was spruiking at the footy because you're doing it for the Senate and you've got to try and appeal to the whole of Victoria. So I thought oh, I'll just stand aside the footy because that's where the whole of Victoria goes. <laughs> And and I'm there, I'm handing out pamphlets, and this guy walks past me and says, well, why don't you get off your ass and do something? And I'm just, <laughs> what do you think I'm doing? And he's about to go in and sit on his ass and watch the footy. <laughs> You're going to the footy. I'm standing here. <laughs> anyway, Kevin, we've had enough reminiscing. Yeah, we're running out of time. We have to go. And we have to mention certain things before we go. We have to always mention the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, who are a very good resource if you're unemployed. And we need to mention that uh, you and I are connected with a mob called Modern Money Australia, uh, and we'll do it again in a couple of weeks. So good on you, Anne. See you later. See you, Kevin. You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join us the second Friday of each and every month as part of The Sewer Show on 3CR. We thank all our guests, and I thank you, Kevin. And I thank you, Anne. The pleasure was all mine. Oh, no, I insist. The pleasure was mine. Well, it wasn't all yours. I mean, I had a fair degree of pleasure on this show. It was uh, very pleasurable for me. Oh, no, Kevin, I was highly pleasured. You looked like you are having fun, and it looked very pleasing to you, but I'm just wondering whether I had more fun than you did, because I had a lot of fun. It was very pleasurable. I have to say it was listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.